Hey there, Hip Parade listeners. What you're about to hear is part one of this episode. Part two will arrive in your podcast feed at the end of the month. Would you like to hear this episode all at once? Sign up for Slate Plus. It supports not only this show, but all of Slate's journalism and podcasts. Just go to slate.com slash hitparadeplus. You'll get to hear every Hit Parade episode in full the day it arrives. Plus, Hit Parade The Bridge, our bonus episodes, with guest interviews, deeper dives on our episode topics, and pop chart trivia. Once again, to join, that's slate.com slash hitparadeplus. Thanks, and now please enjoy part one of this Hit Parade episode. Welcome to Hit Parade, a podcast of pop chart history from Slate Magazine about the hits from coast to coast. I'm Chris Melanfi, chart analyst, pop critic, and writer of Slate's Why Is This Song Number One series. On today's show, you're listening to one of the biggest hits from a woman who has been, far and away, the top album seller of the last 15 years. And I feel I need to say this, this is the original version of this song, recorded in 2008. Let's add some vocals. Little did Love Story is one of the top-selling singles by Taylor Swift. It's certified a stunning eight times platinum by the Recording Industry Association of America. And by the way, those eight million copies are mostly dollar downloads, not streams. However, if it were up to Taylor, this single won't go nine or ten times platinum. She hopes we never buy or stream it again. She'd rather we consume this version, which she's even titled Love Story, Taylor's Version. As you may have heard, Swift has begun re-recording all of her early albums as part of a dispute over ownership of her master recordings. However, inside baseball, her reasons for this gambit, it's a fascinating artistic exercise to hear a 31-year-old Swift retake songs she wrote and recorded as a teenager. But there's something else that's notable to hear on a Taylor Swift recording in 2021. Hear that? That's a banjo, generally an instrument that indicates you're listening to a country song, which indeed you are. This is not just a reminder of what a great songwriter Taylor Swift was from her very earliest days, it's a reminder that she was a country megastar back then. Singles like Our Song sounded true to the country format, and they topped the country charts for weeks. They're what made Swift a star in the first half decade of her career. It's been easy to forget this, as over most of the last decade, Taylor's hits have come to sound more like this. Taylor Swift's career is basically unprecedented. Now a chart-topping pop star, she is the only artist to not only cross over from country music, but also attain pop success commensurate with her country success, in some ways bigger. But to this day, most of Taylor Swift's all-time bestsellers remain the CDs she released during her early years, when she was topping Billboard's Hot Country songs on the regular, scoring hits that were twangy before she turned 20. You 
have to go back to country legends like Winona Judd, Brenda Lee, or Tanya Tucker to find a teenager who broke that big on the charts that early. But even within Taylor Swift's own lifetime, there were young country stars who crossed pop in a major way. but then found it hard to stay atop either the pop or country charts, which might explain why Swift was so careful and so deliberate in her crossover to pop, doing it by degrees over several albums and many hits, until the lines between her pop and country hits had really blurred. before she made these final moves toward pop in the tens, back in the aughts when she still sounded like a country star, Swift was already infiltrating the world of pop, hanging out with fellow teen starlets, making mainstream TV appearances, even winning awards on shows that don't normally give prizes to country stars. Although that came with pitfalls. Yo, Taylor. Yeah, we'll talk about that moment but more about what Taylor was achieving than what that boorish gentleman was saying. What's gotten lost in over a decade of headlines about Taylor Swift are the cultural milestones she was achieving, finding a place in the hearts of young people who weren't necessarily tuning in to country radio. He's a reason for the teardrops on my guitar The only thing that keeps me wishing Today on Hit Parade, just like the star herself, we're revisiting Taylor Swift's country years and asking how'd she pull it off? How'd she make that pivot from country to pop seem so effortless? Hint, it wasn't effortless. And how did she bring pop fans to her before she traveled to them? There were many hints early on that Taylor was going to pull this off, but the biggest one in her first half decade was a hit that dominated both country and pop radio in the final year of the aughts. That's where your hit parade marches today, the week ending October 3rd, 2009, when You Belong With Me by Taylor Swift, a number two Hot 100 hit, topped Billboard's radio songs, a chart encompassing all radio formats, including country and pop. Belong's achievement was a big deal, unprecedented in Billboard history, and it was a sign that Taylor came to play. She was going to dominate all corners of the music world, all the charts, and all stations on the radio dial. She wears high heels, I wear sneakers, she's cheer captain and I'm Ever think those fables and fairy tales from back in the day are just a little bit dusty? Wondery and Tinkercast are bringing you a new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Join host DJ Fuchs and his trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as they deliver remixes of fables and folktales, rhythm and rhymes, and fun spins on classics as old as time. Grab the whole family and get ready to groove because they're putting the rap in Rapunzel and getting down with that funky duckling. Where hip hop and fables meet, it's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to all episodes of Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
About two months ago, right after Taylor Swift began releasing the first of her re-recorded material, Billboard revealed a remarkable chart statistic, and it involved a recording icon of much longer standing than Swift, Ms. Dolly Parton. If I should stay, I would only be in your way. I Will Always Love You, quite possibly the most famous song Dolly Parton ever wrote, although there is competition for that title, holds a unique distinction in Hot Country Songs chart history. It's the first song to be taken to number one twice by the same artist, Dolly herself. This recording is the original I Will Always Love You, written by Parton in the wake of her emotional parting from longtime TV show mentor and duet partner Porter Wagner. Parton took this version of I Will Always Love You to number one in 1974. And then just eight years later, it's all I have. Dolly recorded this second version of I Will Always Love You in 1982 for the soundtrack of her movie The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. It also topped the hot country chart. is a remarkable feat on any chart, country or otherwise. Though quite a few songs have topped the Hot 100 twice, that second version has always been a cover by a different artist, like, say, Mariah Carey's 1992 cover of the Jackson 5's I'll Be There, or the 1986 Rama cover of the Shocking Blues' Venus. For a long time, Parton's I Will Always Love You was the only song to pull off this rare country chart feat. But that changed in February of this year, when the song we led off our show with matched it. Taylor Swift's new version of Love Story entered Billboard's Hot Country Songs at number one, instantly becoming Taylor's second chart-topping version of the same song. Her original version of Love Story topped the Hot Country chart back in 2008. Love Story managed to debut so high thanks to heavy streaming and digital sales, chart factors that didn't exist in Dolly Parton's heyday. So the comparison between Dolly and Taylor is a bit of apples and pears. Still, the fact that both women wrote their repeat hits, each by herself, is also remarkable. But there are other distinctions between these two chart titans. Jolene. If you're like most Americans, me included, you have tremendous affection and admiration for Dolly Parton. And if you're a longtime country fan, you can probably rattle off at least a dozen Dolly Parton hits. A staggering 25 of them went to number one on the hot country chart, including this one, her masterpiece, Jolene. Your smile is like a breath of spring, your voice is soft like summer rain, and I cannot compete with you. Jolene. For the record, Jolene, now well known to the general public, including pop fans, was only a number 60 hit on the Hot 100 in 1974. Parton had remarkably few pop crossover hits. In fact, here's a quick quiz, and country fans, sit this one out. It'll be way too easy for you. My fellow pop chart fans, 
how many more Dolly Parton hits can you name besides I Will Always Love You or Jolene? Could you even get to five? I'll bet it's harder than you think. Working nine to five, what a way to make a living. Okay, nine to five. Everybody knows this one. It's Dolly's only solo song to top both the country chart and the Hot 100. I say solo because she had one other Hot 100 number one, but it was a duet. Of course, I'm talking about her 1983 smash with Kenny Rogers, Islands in the Stream. Islands in the Stream, that is what we are. No one in between, how can we be wrong? Parton didn't write that one. As we discussed in our Bee Gees episode of Hit Parade, Islands in the Stream is a composition by Barry Gibb and his brothers, written for Kenny, who then brought in his friend Dolly. Here's one more Dolly crossover she didn't write, and it's probably best known by people my age or older, because it doesn't get as much oldies radio airplay as it used to. Her 1977 number one country, number three pop hit, Here You Come Again. This one was penned by the classic brill-building songwriting team of Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde. And, by the way, we're now already out of major pop hits for Dolly Parton. Nothing else she did cracked the Hot 100's top 10. Very little of her work even made the pop top 40. And, as for the aforementioned I Will Always Love You, unless you're a country radio listener or you're Kevin Costner, likely the first version of that song you knew is the legendary cover by Costner's bodyguard co-star, Whitney Houston. blue staters like me, who downloaded the acclaimed Dolly Parton's America podcast, might now be acquainted with other Dolly country smashes, like her tearjerker Coat of Many Colors, or her awe-inspiring cover of Mule Skinner Blues, or even one or two of her deep country classics like Joshua or Dumb Blonde. Just because I'm blonde, don't think I'm dumb, cause this dumb blonde ain't nobody's But let's be real, even if you're one of those Americans now demanding that statues of Dolly Parton be erected in town squares to replace toppled Confederate monuments, unless you're a serious country fan, you'll have a hard time naming more than maybe five or six Dolly hits. I say all this not to throw even a bit of shade at the mighty Miss Parton or to discourage new fans from getting to know more of her amazing body of work. My point is this. True, abiding, and long-lasting crossover from country music to pop music is extraordinarily rare and devilishly hard to maintain, even for a country icon. And speaking of icons, fellow pop fans, I'll bet you can rattle off a half dozen or more Taylor Swift hits. Taylor still has a way to go before she has attained the cultural sainthood of Dolly. But to reiterate what I said at the top of our show, what Swift pulled off really has very few parallels in country to pop crossover history. You have to look beyond legendary figures like Parton, Kenny Rogers, Loretta Lynn, or Johnny Cash, or later legends like Garth Brooks, who, as I noted in our November episode of Hit Parade, strenuously avoided pop crossover for the bulk of his career. If tomorrow never comes By the way, Taylor Swift was born just a week after this song, If Tomorrow Never Comes, became Garth's first country number one in December 1989. To find real parallels to Swift's singular career, you have to consider some more improbable hitmakers. 
folks who maybe weren't obvious candidates for a country stardom. Before Taylor was born, the 70s and 80s spawned several young female country stars who broke into country from outside of the American South, sometimes far outside. These included Utah-born Marie Osmond, sister to the all-brother Osmond's family band, who was nudged toward country by her family and scored an instant country number one in 1973, when Marie was all of 14 years old, with Paper Roses. Osmond's Paper Roses even scored a 1974 Grammy nomination for Best Country Vocal Performance, Female, but she lost that Grammy to a country singer from an even more improbable place. Let me be there in your morning, let me be there in your night. We talked about the British-born, Australia-raised Olivia Newton-John in our prior Country Hit Parade episode last November. Newton-John is a much closer model for Taylor Swift because she crossed over in a big way to pop but did so gradually, by degrees. She was a pop and country double threat on smashes like I Honestly Love You, Then, in 1978, after Olivia's hit movie musical Grease with John Travolta pulled her further away from country, she committed more fully to pop. After scoring her final top 30 country hit in 1979, Olivia's hits came to sound more like this, her sultry 1980 number one post-disco smash, Magic. Years later, Taylor Swift would claim inspiration for her foray into country by three major 90s acts who experienced pop peaks and valleys. The first of these acts to break big on the charts was Shania Twain, who pulled a stunning eight singles from her 1995 album The Woman in Me, four of them country number ones. But Shania's uber blockbuster was her 1997 follow-up, Come On Over, one of the best-selling albums in chart history, certified for sales of 20 million copies in America alone, equal to Fleetwood Mac's Rumors. Come On Over spent nearly three years spinning off hits, not only to country radio, where it generated the expected string of number ones like Love Gets Me Every Time, but to the pop charts, where Twain scored an unprecedented number of top 40 hits, including the top 10 ballads You're Still the One and From This Moment On. From this moment, as long as I live, I will love you. I promise you this. Spunky, man-tweaking shit-talkers like That Don't Impress Me Much. Okay. So you're Brad Pitt. That don't impress me much. So you got the looks, but have you got the touch? Stadium rockers, a specialty of her then-husband, producer and songwriter Robert John Mutt Lang. These were disguised as country music, like the fist-pumping, exclamation-point-slinging Man, I Feel Like a Woman. Taylor Swift 
growing up in Pennsylvania, regarded Shania Twain as a primary influence for her budding interest in country music. Swift later told The Guardian that Twain's songs, quote, make you want to just run around the block four times and daydream about everything, unquote. Arguably, an even bigger influence on Swift was Leanne Rimes, who, like Twain, spent the late 90s trying to prove she could do it all. Like Swift, Rimes broke into the business at a precociously young age. Her debut hit came at age 13 with Blue a recording that echoed the 50s-60s countrypolitan sound of Patsy Cline. Blue cracked the country top 10 in the summer of 96 and made an instant impression on a young Taylor Swift. Quote, One of my first memories of country music was when I was six years old and my parents took me to see Leanne Rimes in concert, Swift would later tell her own concert audience. By 1997, Leanne Rimes was one of the biggest acts in music, country or pop, as she scored back-to-back number one albums. One CD was filled with her childhood recordings, like the standard Unchained Melody. The other themed around Christian or inspirational songs, such as her hit cover of Debbie Boone's You Light Up My Life. But what made Leanne Rimes go supernova was a track she recorded for the soundtrack to the summer blockbuster Con Air, the Diane Warren penned How Do I Live. This more pop than country ballad debuted on the Hot 100 in the summer of 97 and stayed there most of 98, a staggering 69 weeks, a record for the Hot 100 that would stand for more than a decade. Within just two years of her country breakthrough, Leanne Rimes was now a full-blown pop star and, still in her teens, she moved quickly to build upon that stardom. She recorded tracks with the likes of pop elder statesman Elton John, and she scored another soundtrack hit, Can't Fight the Moonlight, from 2000's Coyote Ugly. You can try. Clearly, young Taylor Swift was taking mental notes of Shania, of Leanne, and of a harmonizing trio who broke big on the charts at the end of the 90s, the Chicks. the multi-instrumentalist sisters Marty and Emily Irwin, later Marty McGuire and Emily Strayer, added the powerhouse Texas vocalist Natalie Maines to their combo, the Chicks became the biggest group in country music and one of the biggest groups in pop. Both their 1998 album Wide Open Spaces and its 1999 follow-up Fly. certified diamond for 10 million in sales. Fly topped the country and pop album charts and generated nine country hits, about half of which made the pop top 40. By 2002, they even cracked the pop top 10 with their string band style cover of Fleetwood Mac's Landslide. And I By the early 2000s, these three female acts, Twain, Rhymes, and The Chicks, all nurtured by country music, 
seem to be having their pop cake and eating it too. But one by one, they ran into career trouble by the middle of the decade. Shania Twain and her then-husband, Mutt Lang, may simply have overreached. Now one of the biggest global music stars, period. Twain had even scored hits across the UK, Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. She and Mutt tripled down with her 2002 CD, Up. It was issued in three versions, color-coded by genre, a green country CD, red pop CD, and blue international disc. Any given track, such as the lead single, I'm Gonna Get You Good, was remixed or re-recorded for each audience, whether country, I'm gonna get you while I got you inside, or pop, or international, which had a specifically South Asian Bollywood-style flavor. Up sold quickly and strongly, but its total sales were less than half those of Come On Over, and its singles did nowhere near as well on the charts. No country number ones and no pop top tens. For personal as much as professional reasons, Shania and Mutt had a bitter divorce in 2008, Twain would wind up sidelined from the music business for the better part of a decade. Leanne Rimes managed to keep working, but her pop crossover foundered pretty quickly. After How Do I Live, Rimes never returned to the pop top 10, and by the mid-aughts, she had reverted back to pure country music. Fortunately, her original audience welcomed her back, giving her a number two country hit in 2006 with Something's Gotta Give. And the chicks, they were not as lucky when it came to the country audience. Infamously, they were blacklisted by country radio in 2003 when Natalie Maines expressed her disdain for the Iraq War and President George W. Bush in front of a London concert audience. Their then-current country hit, the number one Travelin' Soldier, plummeted off of Billboard's Hot Country Songs in just two weeks. The Chicks would never score a top 10 country radio hit on their own again. When they returned with their Grammy-winning 2006 album, Taking the Long Way, and its wounded single, Not Ready to Make Nice, Chicks appeared primarily on the pop charts, not the country charts. Taylor Swift observed all of these goings-on watchfully. More than a decade later, long after she'd become a star, Swift revealed that her early wariness at even discussing politics was motivated by what happened to the Chicks. And she couldn't help but notice that all of her heroes' rapid moves toward the pop charts, especially Shania's and Leanne's, led to pushback from the Nashville establishment. That might help explain why Taylor Swift's very first single was not only pure country, it was even named after a country superstar. But when you think Timberwolf, I hope you think my favorite song. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
The story of Taylor Swift's upbringing has been exhaustively told, mostly by Taylor herself, who would later title one of her albums after the year of her birth, 1989. Born to a stockbroker father and a mutual fund marketer turned homemaker mother and named after singer-songwriter James Taylor, Swift wrote her first songs by age 12. And after watching a VH1 Behind the Music special about country megastar Faith Hill, Taylor convinced her parents to take her down to Nashville so she could make the rounds on Music Row to try to get herself signed. And I had this little demo CD, me singing songs by uh, Dolly Parton and the Dixie Chicks and Leanne Rimes. Marched up and down Music Row with these demo CDs and would walk in and hand them to the receptionist while my mom and little brother were parked outside in a rental car. You went in all by yourself? Yeah. That is so brave. Thank you. I, I don't think I knew any better. Eventually, around 2004, Swift's family relocated to a Nashville suburb. She signed a publishing contract at age 14. And, after a performance at the famed Bluebird Cafe, seen by Nashville record executive Scott Borchetta, she signed a recording contract at age 15 with Borchetta's upstart country label Big Machine Records. Taylor's first single, written during her freshman year of high school, could not have been more Nashville-friendly. It was named after this guy. Gave forgiveness, I've been denying. And he said, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. Tim McGraw, one of the top artists in country, and, incidentally, one half of Nashville's ultimate recording power couple, with his wife, Faith Hill. Taylor Swift's Tim McGraw was a sharp-eyed entree into the world of country, a wistful song about a summer romance, now ended, that the singer will always conjure up when hearing her favorite song by McGraw. Swift toiled for her first hit, touring and glad-handing country radio programmers. Released in the summer of 2006, Taylor's Tim McGraw took six months to climb the charts, peaking in January 2007 at number six on Hot Country Songs and number 40 on the Hot 100. Swift emerged at a promising moment for young female country singers, just as a small wave of young voices was breaking. The two most prominent, both coincidentally discovered via televised singing competitions, were singer-songwriter and Nashville star contestant Miranda Lambert and 2005 American Idol competitor Carrie Underwood, who won the Fox TV juggernaut's fourth season and became the show's first country winner. Underwood's Before He Cheats, a sharp-tongued revenge song and Carrie's third single, was an especially well-timed breakthrough. After a long run on the country charts in 2006, culminating in a month at number one, Before He Cheats very gradually crossed to pop radio by the spring of 2007. It eventually reached number eight on the Hot 100, notably in its twangy original version, without any kind of pop remix. It was a signal to Team Taylor that pop crossover was possible without losing a country audience. Just as Before He Cheats was peaking, Swift released her second single, the very pop-friendly ballad Teardrops on My Guitar. He's a reason for the teardrops on my By August 2007, Teardrops was a number two country hit. Six months later, following the Before He Cheats playbook, Teardrops reached number 13 on the Hot 100. 
During those intervening months, Swift issued a third single that finally made her a chart topper, the jaunty Our Song. Unlike Tim McGraw and Teardrops on My Guitar, both of which Swift co-wrote with Nashville songwriter Liz Rose, Swift composed Our Song Alone. When it reached number one on Hot Country Songs in December 2007, a week after Swift's 18th birthday, she became the youngest artist ever to both write and sing a country number one single by herself. This was part of Swift's plan all along, to prove country music had all kinds of fans and would embrace a teen star. She said as much in an interview with country music television. The thing that I heard the most is, country music does not have a young demographic. So you, being a teenager, are not going to fit into country music because the only people that listen to country music on country radio are 35-year-old females. And I just kept thinking, that can't be accurate because I listen to country music. And I know there have to be other girls who listen to country music and want some, some music that is maybe directed more towards them. Quietly and gradually, Swift's 2006 self-titled debut album kept selling deep into 2007. The Taylor Swift CD reached number one on the country albums chart in its 39th week, went double platinum by Christmas, and cracked the top five on the Billboard 200 pop chart in January 2008 in its 63rd week. It was still spinning off hits deep into that year, its final single, Should Have Said No, reached number one on the country chart in August 2008 and number 33 on the Hot 100. You should have said no, you should have gone home, you should have thought twice before you let it all go. It was around this time, in September 08, that MTV started taking notice of Swift. Even after Carrie Underwood's American Idol win and her pop crossover with Before He Cheats, the youth-oriented channel had never had much interaction with a country star before. But after Swift's singles started crossing over to teen pop fans, and with expectations for Swift's forthcoming second album, Sky High, Big Machine got MTV to invite Taylor to work the red carpet at the 2008 Video Music Awards. At one point, she even interviewed her new besties, Katy Perry and Miley Cyrus. I'm here on the red carpet, Fashion Central. We've got two beautiful ladies who actually showed up together. We've got Miley Cyrus and Katy Perry. Hi. And the cool thing about being here is that all three of us are actually nominated for the Best New Artist wow. VMA. And I think that yeah. if we weren't all like crazy about each other, that would be awkward, but it's not because I love Katy Perry and I love Miley Cyrus. We love Taylor Swift. The layers of irony here are fairly delicious, years before Swift got into a long feud with Katy Perry. Without question, at this moment in 2008, both Perry and Cyrus were the bigger stars. Perry was enjoying her first wave of big hits, like I Kissed a Girl and Hot and Cold. And Cyrus, whom we discussed in depth in our May 2018 episode of Hit Parade, was defining her own lane. The daughter of country star Billy Ray Cyrus, Miley broke through as a TV character, Hannah Montana, and had her first wave of hits as that teen rock singer character. Now pivoting to recording under her own name, Miley had just scored her first big hit as Miley Cyrus, See You Again. But she was also trying to pull Taylor Swift's crossover trick from the opposite direction, reaching the top five on the country chart in a duet with her dad called Ready, Set, Don't Go. A 
months after the 2008 VMAs, Miley would even score a pop and country hit of her own with a song from the Hannah Montana movie, The Climb. Taylor Swift would never be a sideshow at the VMAs again. And as she interviewed other celebrities on MTV's red carpet, she was already quietly infiltrating the charts with her next wave of hits. Not just the country chart, the Hot 100. Because these things will change. Can you feel it now? These walls that they put up to hold us back will fall down. Change though not remembered as one of Swift's big hits, was her first pop top 10, debuting at number 10 on the Hot 100 in August 2008, fueled by 99-cent downloads. Anticipation for her next CD was so high, fans bought 131,000 copies of its first single, even without significant radio airplay. On the country chart, where downloads still didn't count, change peaked at number 57, an indication that Swift's fanbase was going younger and more mainstream. Swift's sophomore album would be called Fearless, and she spent the fall dropping advanced tracks to build anticipation, including its title track, which entered the pop chart at number 9. You're Not Sorry, a number 11 hit. You don't have to call anymore. I won't pick up the phone. This is the last don't hurt anymore. And White Horse, which entered at number 13. That I'm not a princess. This ain't a fairy tale. I'm not the one you'll see. The same week White Horse arrived, so did the Fearless album, and it was a monster, opening to 592,000 copies, including a record number of album downloads. The first radio single from Fearless, Love Story, was already number one on the country chart. album's opening sales number was much higher than any debut ever from Katy Perry, Miley Cyrus, even Carrie Underwood. This was a Garth and Shania level number. The same week the CD arrived on the Hot 100, Swift debuted six new singles and seven total tracks, including the future number 23 hit, 15. As 2008 turned to 2009, Taylor Swift was now one of the biggest artists in current music, of any genre. Fearless spent 11 weeks at number one on the Billboard 200. To this day, that's still the longest run by any of Swift's albums. Over the next 18 months, the album would be certified sextuple platinum. A decade later, Fearless would be certified diamond for 10 million in sales plus streams. Swift's new status was affirmed by the pop crossover by the album's lead single, Love Story. Three months after it topped the country chart in the winter of 2009, Love Story reached number four on the Hot 100 and, more remarkably, number one on Billboard's mainstream pop chart, a radio chart devoted to airplay at top 40 pop stations. We were both young when I first saw you. I closed my eyes and the flashback starts. I'm standing there. To this day, Love Story remains the only single by anybody to be number one in country airplay one week, pop airplay another. Its follow-up single did, in a way, even better. She wears short skirts, I wear t-shirts, she's cheer captain and I'm on the bleachers. 
first issued in the fall of 08 as one of the teaser singles ahead of Fearless, You Belong With Me would spend nearly a year on the Hot 100. Unsurprisingly, the sprightly single, a deeply relatable tale of a high school crush on a boy distracted by another girl, followed Love Story to number one on Hot Country Songs in August 2009. That same week, You Belong With Me peaked at number two on the Hot 100. And just over a month later, the song reached number one on Billboard's Radio Songs chart, which tracks airplay across all radio formats. For the first time, probably since Islands in the Stream in 1983, the most played song on American radio was a country tune. In the middle of this remarkable run in September 2009, Swift traveled to New York City to perform her smash crossover hit on the 2009 MTV VMAs. As both a show of how game she was and a gesture of welcome to New York, Taylor performed You Belong With Me live in the New York City subway system, accompanied by an army of fans, following her as she sang through a station, onto a train, out at another station, and onto the street in front of Radio City Music Hall. It was a Broadway-level extravaganza that added pizzazz to the Video Music Awards. Taylor Swift was having a pretty great night. When we come back, Taylor Swift follows her triumphant VMA's live performance with a win in a major category. But neither the performance nor the win is what's still remembered about the 2009 MTV Video Music Awards a dozen years later. Non-Slate Plus listeners will hear the rest of this episode in two weeks. For now, I hope you've been enjoying this episode of Hit Parade. Our show was written, edited, and narrated by Chris Melanfi. That's me. My producer is Asha Salujan, and we also had help from Rosemary Belson. June Thomas is the senior managing producer and Gabriel Roth, the editorial director of Slate Podcasts. Check out their roster of shows at slate.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to Hit Parade wherever you get your podcasts, in addition to finding it in the Slate Culture feed. If you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us while you're there. It helps other listeners find the show. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to leading the hit parade back your way. We'll see you for part two in a couple of weeks. Until then, keep on marching on the one. I'm Chris Melanfield.